often after a car crash, we say, what did the driver do? But if we swap a car for an escaped tiger, then you see the folly. So a tiger gets loose. What do we do? We use muzzles and moats around the cage and cages and tranquilizers, big ass locks, leashes. We don't punish the tiger or try and educate the tiger. We need to control the potential harm of the tiger. And so with traffic crashes, all we talk about is punishing the driver and educating the driver and not controlling the harm of kinetic energy on our roads. Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And I'm Kirsten Gorasek, transportation editor at TechCrunch. And I'm Alex Roy, the founder of the Human Driving Association, former Cannonball record holder, and director for special operations at Argo AI, whom I never represent on this show. And I'm so thrilled because I've been accused of being pedantic many times. Uh, and maybe Ed has been a little bit too, but that's why this show got founded. Talk about to cut through the nonsense around transportation, safety, and technology. And today's guest is someone who, in a, I hate to say that, no, I don't hate to say this, in a, in a landscape filled with the muck of hollow, intellectually lazy consultants and fake thought leaders, we have someone who's a true thought leader who has glued together disparate threads of thinking and language to solve a problem, which is how we talk about safety and why language matters. We have author Jesse Singer, the author of There Are No Accidents, and boy, do I want to hear what she has to say. Welcome, Jesse. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Cool. You forgot the important part, which is also journalist, Alex. So you had one job, which is to <laughs> say author and journalist, and you know, you just said author. I had, so I had one job. Should I, should I start in a, from a feisty place? Yeah, go for it. Go. I'm sure Jesse can handle okay. whatever you throw at her. <laughs> a certain CEO of a certain um, very well-funded autonomous vehicle uh, developer uh, last night was on uh, CNBC talking to Jim Cramer. His name may or may not be Kyle Vogt. And he said that we are losing the war on, ac- uh, on accidents. And boy, that got my blood boiling. Um, Jesse, would you, would you like to talk about the gestation of your book and why it's called There Are No Accidents? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good place to start. Um, it's not a happy story, but, um, it is how I got here. Um, in, in 2006, my best friend was, uh, riding his bike, um, along the West side of Manhattan where there's a separated biking and walking and path. Um, and he was killed there, um, in 2006, he was a New York city public school math teacher. And an all-around great guy. Um, and he was killed by a driver on the bike path, someone who had mistakenly turned and entered the path. The driver was drunk and speeding. He went to prison. And for a long time, that was the end of the story. Um, the impetus for this book happened 11 years later when a different man rented a truck and followed the exact same route as my best friend's killer, except this second man intentionally turned onto the path. He killed eight people and injured 11 in an act of vehicular terrorism. And... The fact that the action of both of these killings was the exact same inspired me to look deeper into my best friend's death. And I found that other people had been killed there before and after my best friend on the same path. Um, Every time the drivers had entered by accident and the drivers were all different, you know, some were drunk, some were distracted, some were lost. But every time after all those deaths, the story that was told was it was an accident. 
And so no problems were solved. Maybe someone went to jail. But after the terror attack, after the intentional act, the city and state got together and they made the harm impossible. They barricaded every entrance to this biking and walking path. So you literally couldn't turn a car onto it. And it was this first realization for me that accident was this sort of magic word of willful ignorance, a way that we all sort of accepted uh, that it was okay to ignore preventable harm. Was the initial lens that you, as you started exploring the book, was through just the design perspective, so like the infrastructure design perspective, and then expanded from there? Or did you start from another point? Because to me, it's like, solve the road infrastructure, but there are other problems, right, that happen within the vehicle or, you know, other other aspects that can cause, quote unquote, accidents, right? Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that really stuck out for me in those early days when I was like, there's more to investigate here, you know, like, what's the real story was when I, was when I started to look at the numbers, you know, and this idea that accidents are supposed to be random. But if that were true, Injury-related death would fall randomly across the country, right? But it doesn't. People living in poverty and people of color are most likely to die, you know, in so-called accidents, especially where policy and infrastructure make the difference between life and death. So, so part of it is a design thing, but part of it is a policy thing, like how well we're regulating housing laws in your community and therefore guaranteeing that the standards are kept up to date so that you are safe in your home. And that's true in our roads, in our cars, and in our workplaces. We really see this divide of policy decisions and unregulated corporate power leading to risk unequally distributed across the U.S. We're just not exposed to the same risk, even though we like to chalk this up to a people problem. So, so the, you know, in the last couple of years of my work, I've been really like, it's kind of been one thing after another of, uh, or one case of another after another of, of sort of realizing that like there are these words out there where we say them and we're all like, oh yeah, that, right? And like, we all act like we know exactly what we're all talking about. But then like, if for whatever reason, you know, you get yourself into a situation where like, or like a job, for example, where you have to be like, what is self-driving? You know, these words are whatever it might be that we just kind of throw around. Um, and, and, and it's like, we have this way of, um, of assuming that we all know what we're talking about. And then also like kind of pretending like we know what we're talking about to kind of fit in. There's this weird social thing around language that, that kind of holds us around these things, but that prevents us from actually ever asking. And what I think is like so fascinating about this term accident, which is actually weirdly one of the words that I, I tried to get out of my vocabulary like quite a few years ago, um, although, it's, although it's really difficult. But, but what I think what you've laid bare is that, is that this word accident, what divides an accident from something that's not is so arbitrary, right? And, and that a lot of times it's who is the victim, right? Um, it is what defines a, an accident and, you know, a tragedy or, you know, something that is like that, that and, and fundamentally, right? It's about what we sort of collectively, without really even like looking at the details a lot of times of these things, decide is sort of just acceptable, versus not and 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 we have to do something is it, is it really that arbitrary i mean as you study this in a lot of different domains i mean it seems like that's that's sort of one of the main points but at the same time you know there's also these patterns of you know when certain when bad things happen to certain people or certain kinds of people that that's kind of more likely to be considered an accident than others um i'm just curious about this the the language piece and sort of what you've you've learned as you've sort of 
dived into this topic. Yeah, I mean, the truth is, is that accident like actually is a magic word in the sense it's got like two definitions that contradict with each other. It, it means a random event and a harmful event. So at once something that's unpredictable, but has a predictable outcome. So the definition in the dictionary is total gibberish. But also researchers have actually looked into what we hear when we hear the word accident. And what we hear is neither of those definitions. What we think when we hear the word is unintentional. And so like this is at the core of what we get wrong about accidents. We're focused on like what a person did and whether they did it wrong or not. And if you look at the actual science of how you prevent harm, how you prevent injury-related death, it has nothing to do with what one person did wrong, especially at the very far end of the chain of events. Um, but it is something that we've seen taken advantage of when you get into like questions of who's harmed and you see all these personal responsibility tropes you know, trickle out throughout history, you know, starting with the Industrial Revolution, through the rise in traffic deaths, um, through to today, like the accident prone worker. Um, you know, and there's a lot of like, um, in that time in the Industrial Revolution, a lot of like immigrant slang involved in that personal responsibility trope. Um, but then there's the nut behind the wheel and the jaywalker that come out of the auto industry as traffic crashes rise. Um, and then even today, you see ones like, um, the irresponsible parent comes up a lot in, you know, like our current society. There's this, that that's really the, the question here. But all of this is just a way to ignore layered causality um, and harm reduction, which is kind of where I always try and turn people back to. Because when it comes down to it, if causality is layered, if lots of things go wrong, if there are lots of ways we could intervene to make things safer, then anytime we talk about one cause, and especially one individual human behavior-based cause, because it's really hard to change human behavior, we're just barking up the wrong tree. We're just looking for ways to not actually solve the problem. Maybe to punish, maybe to find a bad guy because that makes us feel better, but not actually solve the problem. Can you unpack uh, the phrase layered causality? Yeah, absolutely. So this is something that comes out of a few big thinkers in the world of injury prevention who, you know, started to really advance in the 1940s and 50s and through the 1980s. But essentially, um, a lot of the thinking comes out of starting to look at like big disasters, you know, like Three Mile Island, nuclear meltdowns, dams breaking, and saying what went wrong here. And so if you look at something like Three Mile Island, you know, the initial story that rolled out was there was like one, you know, switchboard operator who didn't see a light. But then if you actually broke down what went wrong, you see that the switchboard operator didn't didn't correctly read a light. But also the way the light was designed was really confusing. But also they didn't know that a valve was open because the valve mechanism was malfunctioning. And actually the very design of the nuclear reactor was very fragile. And there are all these layers that stack up that led to the meltdown, a sort of um, cascade of failures. And one thing I try and do in the book is extrapolate these ideas out. Um, that idea probably predominantly comes from a guy named Charles Perrault normal accident theory was what he called it. Um, and so those were meant for like big closed systems, those theories. And what I try and do is extrapolate it out to all the ways we see these, not big accidents, but everyday accidents, like a traffic crash. And the fact that a traffic crash happens on the same road in the same neighborhood. And when people die in the traffic crash, they're more likely to be driving a similar type of car. Um, and how those layers all stack up to the disaster. 
Um, and if you intervene in any of those layers, you reduce the likelihood of harm. And I think an important point to get out about this is about also about like race and class and why, you know, certain people are more likely to be killed in traffic crashes. Um, certain people are likely to, you know, be killed in all accidents. It's it, because those conditions, those layers of safety or a lack of safety are different depending on like where you live and what kind of car you drive. And, you know, what happened in your neighborhood 50 years ago? Did they build a highway through it or did they not build a highway through it? That's going to affect the likelihood of a traffic crash on any given day, even 50 years later. And the race of the people living in that neighborhood is exactly what would have defined whether or not that highway was built. It's interesting when you talk about the cascading um, effect. And funny enough, there you see this applied to the mountaineering and alpinism world. So there is a book that comes out every year with as part of the American Alpine Club that's Accidents in North America. And it is a literal breakdown and it's meant to be educational of like why this death occurred or why this injury occurred. And it almost, I haven't come across one incident yet in which it was a singular thing. It was usually a series of um, bad choices, decisions, and then other things like maybe, you know, the weather turned, but then the person decided to keep going, whatever it is. So when you start to think about that world, like just how human beings think, what, when you look at a city now, or you walk through in um, a neighborhood now, you must look at the landscape differently and kind of consider that cascading effect um, of, well, I could see how a human being could, could make this incorrect choice and then it could lead to this. Do you do that when you walk into a neighborhood now or at intersection where you think of like all the cascading choices that could lead to a bad outcome, a crash or a death or something? Or uh, I'm just curious what you how you see the world now when you when you walk through or drive in a vehicle. I like that you've tapped into the core of my neuroses here. We're really we're really getting uh, getting deep into it. Well, you um, can't have you you could not have gone through the process of writing a book. I, I watched Ed go through it and not come out somewhat different um, view of the world. Um, I'm not going to say disturbed or neuroses, but um, certainly you're going to look at things a little differently. Yeah, you know, you can't unsee it. You can't unsee the the cascading dangers, certainly. Um, but I like that you brought up the natural world, because I think that's like a really smart point. Uh, one thing I talk about in the book is when I was a little kid, I fell off a cliff, like 10 feet, a bad hand injury, I survived. Um, but, you know, there was there was no rail on this cliff in a public park. Um, and it gets, a, you know, how much control we have over the natural world. Like when you're mountaineering, there's limited control we can have in that environment. But in our roads, we can have complete control. And this is, again, why you see those different outcomes. Like, you know, you're much more likely to die by accident in the U.S. than in Europe or Japan. Um, and where I live in New York, you're much less likely to die in a traffic crash than you are in Texas. Where do you live in New York? Uh, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Uh, New Yorkers aren't better drivers than Texans. Or, you know, maybe they are, but no one would argue that New Yorkers are somehow more responsible. No, the conditions are different, right? Um, and, and so you, like, kind of get obsessed with that layered causality. And, like, I do, I see it everywhere in the world. But I would actually argue, as much as it does make some things more difficult, it's also comforting. Because it's this realization that there are a million answers to the problem. 
you know, and, you know, normally you get, you know, you're walking to try and walk across the street and someone comes to you close and too close to you in their car and you say, Oh, Oh, I'm scared. I'm angry. You know, that, that person is the real problem. But with this perspective, with an understanding of layered causality, you can kind of like diffuse that anger quite a bit because there's no answer to that anger. I'm not going to chase that car down. That car is not going to get, you know, driver's not going to get punished. There's no solution there. But if you look at the layered causality, you can see that there are so many ways to solve this problem. There are so many ways we can insert ourselves and insert, you know, pillows between us and the potential of injury. Um, and, and that is that is a calming thought in a way, because like there really are many, many, many things we could do if we make this about reducing the harm of impact severity rather than about bad people. The the. The piece of that, though, that it could be then overwhelming, though, because there are so many choices. So then the next piece is, well, where do we direct that energy? And what is the best way to go about fixing it? And so what are you, I mean, are people coming to you post book and seeking answers? Like I'm, I'm talking policymakers or people um, in design and infrastructure like, where are you seeing focused efforts on, you know, tackling the problem? And I understand that's a super broad question because you could take one neighborhood and probably find five things. But where are you getting the most, I guess, inbound um, and interest? And how does that correlate to the best path forward to solving those problems? Because as you said, there's many ways to go about it. This is interesting. If you look particularly at traffic, I see a lot of attention from advocates, from people who care, you know, obviously from victims' families who are targeting engineers and DOTs in their communities. And also some of those transportation departments are also bringing me in to talk to them internally. Um, and obviously the, the built environment of the road is one big equation here if we're talking about traffic crashes. Where I'm not seeing any interest in talking to me is on the other end from the automakers, um, from NHTSA, um, from the regulators who are responsible for constructing safe vehicles, um, which is like easily a huge half of the problem, um, you know, and um, that's really where I wish there was more willingness to say, okay, we've dropped the ball. Okay, we're ready to move forward. Um, but so much of what you see coming out of, you know, uh, out of NHTSA today and out of the like regulatory framework is is just this this continued focus on human error and you know, that the problem here is really just people who don't follow the rules. So, so I have to ask uh, about um, uh, my friend uh, Jennifer Homedy at the NTSB and her emphasis on the, the safety system. Now, not a regulator, right? Investigative body. Um, frustrating as that is sometimes. <laughs> I'm curious, uh, you know, it, it's been interesting to see that happen because on the one hand, she's very much, I think it, it sounds to me echoing what you're saying, right? That, that safety is really about multi-factor approach. And, and it's, that, it's that optimism you talked about, about, hey, there's so many different things we, we could be looking at. At the same time, it's interesting because it, it feels like sometimes <laughs> like that, that, that ends up being like a fight among people. And I guess some of that's natural of like, my part of this <laughs> is more important than others. So like, it, it's, it, it kind of seems like on the one hand, this opportunity to kind of be like, hey, this is all important. On the other hand, it also kind of ends up almost being like, feels like a cage match a little bit sometimes of like, no, this is like actually a way for us to like, duke out like what's really the, the most important thing. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about, about, you know, what she's done to, to sort of 
you know, spark that discussion and, and just sort of where, where you think that might po- positively contribute here? Well, my first thought is that Jennifer Hamadi is a gem um, in, a, in a field of coal. Um, um, but, but also... But you sound like me. <laughs> but she's also uh, interestingly reinvigorating. And this was something that really struck me when I was writing the book, which is that 50 years ago, we were talking about these things in a much smarter way than we were talking about them now. Um, and so what we're seeing at NTSB is really like an invigoration of those older ideas, you know, of like one of my favorite thinkers in, that I put forth in the book is a Dr. William Hayden. He was a physician and he was the first administrator of NHTSA. Um, and he's a guy who talked about that we've all been miseducated, that the solution to speeding is having cops chasing everyone down for going 120 miles per hour instead of just making cars that couldn't go that fast. So what he was talking about was reducing harm, reducing energy severity as being the thing that mattered, um, you know, and that that wasn't in the control of individuals. It could be under his watch in the control of NTSB. He talks about this analogy that I love, which is the idea of an escaped tiger. Often after a car crash, we say, what did the driver do? But if we swap a car for an escaped tiger, then you see the folly. So a tiger gets loose. What do we do? We use muzzles and moats around the cage and cages and tranquilizers, big ass locks, leashes. We don't punish the tiger or try and educate the tiger. We need to control the potential harm of the tiger. And so with traffic crashes, all we talk about is punishing the driver and educating the driver and not controlling the harm of kinetic energy on our roads. And so we were just having much smarter conversations 50 years ago today than we were today. And, and Jennifer Hamadi really gets at that a little and starting to push forward, you know, a, a bit of a brighter future. This this is something that like I, I just think about all the time with all these, you know, six, seven, eight more thousand pounds. You know, the hottest vehicles on the market right now are these really big, heavy EVs that also go zero to 60. And just like like if you think of of, of danger as being right mass times speed, essentially, like as far as vehicle danger, that's sort of the fundamental factor, right? Is that is that calculation? We're making it worse with by, with, with these vehicles. And again, I mean, electrification, I think, is a good thing in a lot of ways. But I think there's there's a really interesting tension there that I think not a lot of people are really talking about, right? And this was Hayden's first big idea because he talked about injury prevention in a much larger way, and he was like, you know what, all energy and injury prevention is the same. Poisoning, same as car crashes. You know, uh, a nuclear meltdown, same as car crashes. So in one sense, it's nuclear energy. In one sense, it's kinetic energy. It's chemical energy. But the solution is controlling and reducing the harm of the energy. It's the same math across the board. All injury is the same. But we've really exiled the whole world into these silos. So we talk about traffic safety in a totally different breath than we talk about work safety or fire safety or home safety. Instead of considering these all public health issues where our goal is mitigating the harm rather than changing the behavior. How how much is American culture play into this because it's it's interesting that Ed brought up these very heavy vehicles. So I just happened to have one that was sent to me for, you know, I test vehicles periodically. And this is the uh, Hummer EV, which is the most ridiculous vehicle, like in terms, like the size is, is crazy, but I, I was testing it and I spent 
30 minutes, you know, I drive up the mountain surrounded by people fascinated by the vehicle, wanting to know about it because it's so big and badass. And like, there was this, I was surrounded more about that vehicle, maybe because there, you don't see them around than others that I have test driven. And it reminds me of this culture around like a rejection of feeling like they don't want to live in a nanny state and they don't want any controls and they want to be free. I mean, there's the graphic that comes up on this vehicle when you do the zero to 60, like the special launch, which you couldn't actually safely do on any road. And I was told that to do it on a closed road, which who does that? Literally a graphic comes up that says Watts to freedom. So it seems like culturally people in the U.S. want that. They don't want to be quote unquote babysat. They don't like they they view what you just talked about as preventing them from being free. And I don't I don't know if that I'm curious, is that is that do you see the same thing or is this just from where I sit like? You know, it really, most people want these things. Um, and I just, as the people I'm surrounded by in the automotive world. No, I, I think what you're seeing is accurate. And every time I did like conservative talk radio and interviews for this book, someone brought up the nanny state, you know, just, isn't this just the nanny state? And my response was always like, nannies are great. Those are like someone that if you're rich, you can hire to keep your child alive. Like that is like some top notch, uh, you know, social engineering. But this comes to an important point, which is uh, Americans didn't start rejecting the nanny state until government propaganda told them to. I mean, until Ronald Reagan told them to. And so something that happens is that, um, you know, we see after World War II, um, the U.S. government builds out the social safety net and they build this system of regulatory agencies and accidental death falls for decades. But it's been rising since 1992 which is the after effect of Reagan defanging those regulatory systems and dismantling the social safety net. And part of that came with a lot of propaganda about the nanny state and freedom and the idea that the government helping you live a full life and die at an old age was somehow a bad thing. Um, and when it comes down to it, the only thing we ever see throughout history in the U.S. of reducing those accidental deaths is regulation and a government cost on accidents that forces corporations to pay. And so we're in a situation now where income inequality is an all-time high and there is more and more accidental death. And we also all pay for it. Corporations aren't paying for it now, so we all pay later because they're externalizing the cost. We pay in our healthcare system, we pay in road repair, in emergency services, in welfare from people burdened by medical bills. So we're, we're in this system where we've propagandized freedom and instituted it into policy. And then we look at the harms caused by that, all this accidental death, and we say, well, if you're free, then it must be a problem of what you did and your behavior and not all the ways that the systems of power and profit could actually be protecting you. What are three, two or three things that you would want automakers to do to like today that like if you could just have them all officially change design or the size of vehicles, like what would you prioritize? I mean, I think uh, speed governors are a, a number one. Um, 
uh, intelligent speed governors, um, vehicle weight and uh, size, um, you know, are at the top of the list. Um, but, you know, also incorporating what we've seen actually really functional in Europe and Japan, which is testing and regulating vehicles for pedestrian safety. Um, so that we actually know what we're doing here. You know, we exist in a, a bubble of ignorance right now around our vehicles and what they do to people who are not the consumer, um, but the, often the victim. And maybe at the core of that is embracing regulation. You know, I, I often like to compare when people are like, this is a matter of personal responsibility. I like to talk about this analogy of two speeding drivers, one rich who's paid 10K or whatever to get automatic emergency braking on their car and one poor who has an old car. Um, you know, they both make the same bad decisions. They're both, they're responsible. They both speed, they both crash. One lives, one dies. Is one more responsible, a better driver? No, no. They were exposed to different conditions based on their position in the world. And so if we could see automakers embracing regulation, it neutralizes the field. Regulation protects everyone. So like, I don't care so much about the fact that there are safety packages in these cars that rich people can buy. Um, and everyone else is driving a 10 year old vehicle. Because when it comes down to it, the competition from that mega electric vehicle and your old Toyota Corolla, you know, or a pedestrian or a cyclist, is that the person with less power is always going to die. So it, when you talk about cascading, um, cascades and um, what was it, layered causality, everything, obviously everything, this is just code for everything exists as part of a system. The system has different as multiple inputs, which could be regulation, the vehicle design, the vehicle speed, um, uh, the landscape, the road design, all of it's part of the system. And then you also have the driver who's part of that system. If, when, when people say, oh, well, you know, uh, speed limits in Germany are so high, but crashes are lower. So clearly, um, you know, uh, that could ever work here because drivers aren't well-trained. What, like, what is the Delta uh, for crash rates, if you, I mean, even vaguely, if you know it, it uh, between Germany and the United States. I mean, what if Americans were trained and had to go through the hoops that European or German drivers have to go through to get a license? How much of a difference would that make with the existing system in this country? Is it 5%? Is it 20%? I have no idea what the answer to yeah, that is. I've, I've never I've seen never... the research. I'm curious. I don't know. Like, I mean, I think driver training and stricter... Um, you know, regulations on who gets to drive would help. But I think it's more important, you know, it's important to understand there's a lot of other layers to that system. So you're talking about German traffic crashes, but you're also talking about the fact that people in Germany have a lot more options to not drive, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and it, it's, it's a much easier thing to not drive there. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm a great example. You know, I learned to drive um, when I was 17. I was really, really bad at it. Um, I crashed my car twice. I m stopped driving and I haven't driven since. And I live in New York City where that is entirely possible. And everywhere else in the country, you could be like me, you know, someone who maybe doesn't have the skill because driving is a skill um, and you don't have a lot of options but to drive, um, not economically, economically, not socially. Um, so, you know, this idea that like, I think I think driver education would certainly be great. But it is individualizing the problem a little still. Um, when it comes down to it, if we make all the roads narrower, then no one will feel safe driving fast and they'll all slow down, um, which is a bit more of a holistic sweeping answer than 
fixing the education system of each of those drivers. It certainly would hurt, though. I have a, a kind of a pet theory about this, and and it's not one that I you know have really any like scientific data to support, but it, it feels right to me. I'm curious about your your thoughts on it, um, which because it ties into exactly what you said, right? In in this country, right after a century of you know having this uh, you know, mobility monopoly for for most of the country outside of places like New York of, of the car, we don't have really a choice but to drive. Um, and, and yet it's also the most dangerous thing most of us do every day. And it's actually a, an incredibly dangerous thing. M- my pet theory is that people can't psychologically handle really acknowledging day in, day out that this thing that they have no choice about is as dangerous as it is. And that that like paradoxically fuels this sort of casual nonchalant approach to it. Like, like we, we don't take it seriously as a psychological defense mechanism because we cannot hold up to the strain of really thinking about the risk and the danger that we're participating in, in every day. Now I, I've made actually kind of recently a, 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 a you know, a trying like every time I get behind the wheel and turn on a, a vehicle, I take a moment to think about this is the most dangerous thing I'm going to, be doing today. And, and it is hard to like, to have that, that consciousness and to hold that and to, and to really embrace it. And I think that most people are so busy about their, about their lives and they're just trying to get to where they're going and they can't think about deal with that. What do you, what are your thoughts about that? And like, like, how do you, that's such a paradoxical reaction, right? To the input. It's like, oh, this is dangerous. And so I'm going to take it less seriously and increase the risk. Like, how do you, once you get into those kinds of negative feedback loops, if in fact, that's what's happening, like, like, where do you go from there? Well, it, what you're getting at is we avoid thinking about bad things, uh, which is very true. Um, but it also looks at like how we think about risk. Um, and there's like a lot of things that affect our risk perception. And risk perception is tricky. I think we like to be like, oh, humans are really bad at risk perception, but we're not really bad at it. Our species has made it this far. Risk perception is a matter of survival. We're doing a, uh, somewhat. All right. <laughs> anyway, we're still here. <laughs> Um, but so two big things that affect risk perception, one is public attention. So like we're scared of what's at, we, we, um, what's advertised a lot. And so that's why we're more afraid of like terrorism than car crashes. Um, you know, because car crashes are barely reported. And also there are these individual things. It's not, you know, a thousand people dead. It's one or two that we might hear about. Um, but a really big factor in risk perception, um, that was, figured out in the 1970s, these folks who studied how we perceived a huge number of risks, you know, found that control mattered so much if we feel in control. And so this is why people are more afraid of plane crashes than car crashes, because like in a plane, you're not in control, but in a car, those are your hands at two and 10. You're, you are the driver. But of course, as we've been talking about this layered causality, we are not actually in control. Automakers are control in, in control. Road designers are control. Um, But an interesting thing about risk perception is that if you break down, if you look at how everyone perceives risk, um, you know, control is a really big, clear factor, and we don't perceive traffic crashes as particularly risky. But if you look at how different types of people perceive risk, we find that people of color and women perceive more risk in the world at large from these accidental so-called random disasters. And notably, those people also are more at risk. And so if you think about it as a matter of control of an individual driver, you feel safe because you're in control of the car. But if you think of it as a matter of white men, 
you also have this idea that white men control the road. They are more likely to be the designer of the road, the engineer, the designer of the car. So white men perceive less risk in the world and are in control of the world. Um, and I think it's fascinating that that works on both levels, that it's not just this individual decision to, you know, turn the car left, but this larger control of all of the systems that expose us to harm that actually affect how we perceive risk. That's so, a great segue to talk about autonomous vehicles because <laughs> that was about. Alex, were you going to go there? Well, yeah. I mean, it is interesting because when, you know, I guess, uh, was it May of 2018 when the Uber ATG crash happened in Tempe, I wrote my most, um, angry screed ever, uh, which basically said that, yes, it is tragic. Uh, and there is mistakes were made by Uber and there are many, but that, um, you know, nine, I think it was eight or nine other people, uh, died, uh, that very, during that 24 hour period in the region. Um, in traffic fatalities, and that the design of Tempe's streets and the roadway and the sidewalk and every the system of streets in uh, where the uh, Elaine Hertzberg was killed, uh, that system itself was deeply flawed, and there were many, many such fatalities which did not involve an autonomous vehicle. What the only reason anyone noticed that particular one was because it was an AV that was being tested, and you know, looking back, it's it's. It seems as if it was a tragedy of two flawed systems colliding. <laughs> the flawed system of AV development and testing that Uber was deploying and the flawed system of streets. And since then, the 94% figure coming uh, has probably exploded in popularity in, in all the worst ways. Uh, how have you been approached? Uh, to be, Let's just define it. The 94% of crashes are blamed on human error is in itself a misquote because the original, if I recall correctly, is that humans are a factor in 94% of crashes. Translated, humans are one layer of the layered causality of any crash. So what is your, (laughs) I mean, what is your, your point of view when people say, well, if any one solution like AVs can't solve it all, we shouldn't bother. Like, what do you say to that to that position? Because that position is where we are in kind of the bottom of the trough of disillusionment right now. Yeah, I mean that's a pretty depressing uh, that's a pretty depressing position. But also, I, I think you know it's symbolic of seeing one problem. You know, and you were saying this uh, the Elaine Herzberg crash was you know two colliding systems, but I think it was even more. I mean, um, Elaine Herzberg was living in poverty. She didn't have housing. She had uh, drug related medical issues. Those are all solvable systems that change outcomes and how we interact in the world. Um, But you do see this a lot with AV tech, where there's a lot of trouble trying to solve for the problem of the driver and less for the problem of speed or impact, which is actually the thing that harms us. And the 94% stat, it's actually even trickier than you described because it's using what engineers assess after a crash. And so like if traffic engineers go to a location after a crash, they, they ask essentially three questions. What was the weather? Was anything broken, like a red light or a missing sign or failed brakes? And what did the driver do? And so 94% of the time, they're finding that human error was one of the things that happened. But the latter question, what did the driver do, is the only open-ended question. Um, And so the part of this about the built environment, the car, the road, is essentially only asking, was this all functioning as intended? Was the system working as we planned it to? 
But we know about cars and we know about roads, um, you know, and these roads where the same crash happens a thousand times. The fact that the majority of crashes are speed related, that functioning as intended means functioning to kill people in many, many ways. So it's built into the system, um, you know, where we're seeing this focus on who did what wrong on the 94% set on human error, when we're not actually questioning whether the system as is, is broken. So um, to wrap things up, I'm wondering if you could weigh in on how autonomous vehicles then either have the opportunity to change things. Like how did, where do they fall in this? Because as you mentioned before, we have to look at who's building these systems um, and what they're designed to do. There, there is a lot of hope put on and promises put on autonomous vehicles to solve many of these things. And I'm wondering what your perspective is, because are we just um, going to make the same mistakes all over again um, and really not solve the root problems to um, help people live longer and not get, you know, um, die in a, in a, uh, a crash or, you know, be hit as a bicyclist or pedestrian? I mean, it's a tricky question because so much of what is happening with AV is not necessarily about removing the hazard or isolating people from the hazard, which again is kinetic energy. That's the hazard. Um, they just attempt to reduce the likelihood of like interacting nearby a hazard, um, you know, controlling one minor element in this stack of hazards, which is driver error. And, and this implies that you can control all hazards. Um, you can't. You can just protect people. You can just reduce harm. And this gets us to this tricky point where, you know, so much of the tech we have today, and I see a lot of connections between the, the Tempe, Arizona crash and the Boeing 737 MAX crashes. Um, in both cases, there were automated systems that required humans to monitor the technology. Like that was the setup. It was like autopilot, auto driver, and then a human being who was supposed to make sure the automation didn't get messed up. But you know, researchers have found that we're really bad at watching a machine and making sure the machine doesn't screw up. What does work is when the machine watches us and helps us not screw up. So the autonomous technology that we sort of have today, but that NHTSA refuses to regulate into every vehicle could save far more lives, I think, than the pipe dream that we're chasing of correcting for all human error. Um, you know, the simple idea of automatic emergency braking, um, you know, driver alcohol detection systems, pedestrian detection could do huge things because they monitor us. They assume we're going to screw up um, and protect, uh, reduce the likelihood of harm in those scenarios. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think I think, you know, just in my sort of coverage and discussions about about autopilot, it's just it's just fascinating because on the one hand, right, um, you know, you have these really misleading statistics put out there and everyone says, oh, the automation is saving all these lives, you know, but as soon as something bad happens, which, which by the way is not true, like those statistics, again, like completely misleading, but then as soon as something bad happens, oh no, it's the driver's fault. You know, Tesla tells you, you know, you have to monitor. And it's like, you're having it both ways. And to me, I mean, I think this is like, for me, why, you know, one of the reasons why, one of many reasons why I think your book is, is so valuable is because like in our popular online discourse, you know, we really tend to go for simple solutions, right? Or simple answers, right? And and we tend to want to flatten that layered causality that you're talking about. And 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 when that happens, it, it, oftentimes it's happening because 
you know, to, to, to support an agenda, right? Like making the stock go up of, of a certain company or whatever, right? There's some outcome. Oh, there that is, no, I'm, I'm so, well, why else would you do that? Yeah. Why else would you say on the one hand, this system is going to keep you safe. And then as soon as it doesn't, then it's your fault. Like, like that you're not helping the people that, right? Like the product is not serving the user at that point. It's serving the, the, the company, right? And, and, so and the shareholders. I'm, so, I'm going to, I'm going to, so I'm going to take your point and even go one step further. This whole history of um, assignation of responsibility solely to a human and absolving the system or systems of any input to tragedy is also paralleled. It, 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 the yang to the, the yin to the yang of that is when people, you know who we're talking about, but Musk is not alone, um, ascribe the potential for a single technology to solve everything else therefore and when people start to believe that then no effort is made to pursue any alternate solution even if it's cheaper uh, and certainly it makes it impossible to solve systemic issues if there's the pipe dream of a single thing solving it all is constantly dangled just beyond the horizon and that is it's unhealthy culturally and it's also unhelpful from like a development standpoint because people are then permanently disappointed and they lose faith in any progress and no change is possible. But I, but we see this coming, I mean, largely from the AV industry or adv- I should say advocates of the AV industry. They're not talking about systemic issues at all or even like uh, infrastructure design. It is all, everything is placed on the shoulders of the technology to single-handedly reduce all crashes, which is never, it's just not going to happen. I mean, there's. Agree, but not all AV companies say that. But, but I would say that like, generally speaking, advocates of whether they're working on the technology or they just are excited about it. They, there's a lot of put on the shoulders of that technology to basically solve something that has existed for generations. And so far we haven't seen one thing help. I mean, just as Jesse was talking about, there's multiple things going on at once. If you look at that intersection where there's been, you know, every city has those like the most dangerous intersections. I remember writing those stories when I was like a cub reporter, like this report would come out and be like, oh, this day, you know, and it would usually be because there was recently some sort of death and it would take years. And it would be like sometimes something as simple as there was a blind spot because of a giant tree or there should have been a stop sign there. And like, but like we, we put a lot on the promise of AVs when we know just by history that it's oftentimes multiple reasons why crashes occur. Um, just as Jesse's point earlier was. So it may not be every company doing it, but we're seeing like the media, the companies that are working on it, and just advocates of the technology really pushing this as a single solution. And Jesse, I'm just wondering what your perspective, I mean, you kind of weighed in on it already, but like what your perspective is on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting as a clash because you talk to people who work in transportation safety and have been trying to design, change the design of roads for years. Um, and they're clashing with, you know, you know, technologists, essentially, who would like 
you know, this one holy grail solution to, to solve all of the problems. Um, and at the core of that is, you know, whether or not that technology is feasible and going to happen, none of it addresses a lot of the integral problems. Like we know the only way you reduce traffic crashes is by controlling speed, um, separating modes in time and space, you know, putting fewer cars on the road and more transit. Like that's where we've got evidence. Um, so while I understand the desire for a Holy Grail solution, I understand why that might make people feel better um, and like give them a little hope in a dark world. Um, I worry about the impact, um, you know, especially since so much of this is driven by capitalism, you know, and we have a long history in this country of automakers, you know, insisting that the problem is human error, which is a lot of what the AV industry is doing. Like the problem is human error. AV solves human error. Right. Um, and we, there's just such a long history of automakers insisting that um, and putting safety on the line for profit. Um, one story I like to tell is when the first vehicle safety measures were introduced, um, you know, the first regulations were proposed. And we're talking about collapsible steering columns, seat belts, shatterproof glass. Henry Ford said, this is technically unfeasible and I will need to shut down the Ford Corporation if these regulations pass. We will go out of business. Like that was his demand and his declaration. And obviously Ford's fine. Um, we have seatbelts in all our cars and collapsible steering columns. But another thing that came out of that story was that the collapsible steering column had been invented a decade before and the automakers had a patent on it. They just weren't putting it in cars because it would have cost them money. Um, and maybe this idea, I think they really believe this, that it would have hurt their bottom line to say that a car was anything but safe and that the problem was anything but human error of drivers, not the fact that if you crash, the steering column impaled you, that that was part of the problem. Yeah. You know, and, and, and you're right. This, this all or nothing thing too, is it's, it's part of what's, it's, it's really toxic to the AV sector itself too, because there is no all in one, right? The idea that we're just going to like what Tesla said, right? We're going to, you're going to buy a car and it's just going to drive you everywhere you want to go safer than, than you can. That's not how automation works, right? Robots, all robots, they, they start ironically, right? The exact same things you're talking about in terms of making infrastructure be safer, that would actually create the kinds of operational design domains that would allow automated vehicles to deploy much more easily. And, and I think it's fascinating because, you know, I think one of the themes that I've been finding lately is as, as a country, we are so sold on capitalism is part of it, but it's individualism, I think is, is just a big part of it. And, and, you know, we would rather solve these like almost like just staggering technological problems of, you know, a, a, an autonomous system that can go every, you know, take care of all of our mobility needs, um, then, you know, sort of act collectively <laughs> to take some steps to improve safety. And, and like, and I think it's starting to bite us in the, in, in the ass a little bit in the sense that in places like China, you know, there are, there, there, they're, they're able to do much more aggressive deployments of AVs because they complement that technology with that smart infrastructure and stuff that actually, right? So, and, that, and that's just in the AV sector, but I think there's like a broader message here, which is that cars fool us into thinking that we're all just individuals and that, and that infrastructure and, and, and shared, you know, yeah, shared infrastructure doesn't really matter. And, and the reality is, is it really doesn't, especially as we get into electric and autonomous, like, I feel like it almost matters more. Yes, we would rather, you know, solve massive uh, autonomous technological leaps than 
fun building a few buses. We would rather, you know, dredge the floor of the ocean than uh, build like a lighter, smaller car with a better fuel efficiency. Um, and it, it, it's putting us in a bad way. So, uh, Jesse, yeah, I think that it's it's interesting because we seem, especially in the U.S., but I think globally, there's this obsession with innovation and moonshots because they're more exciting than the drudgery of, you know, going through the checklist and working on foundational changes. And it's also really hard and takes a really long time. And so building something, that's why, I mean, we at TechCrunch write and focus on startups and people get almost addicted to the startup life, even because it's like they're building something new, but they don't actually necessarily see it through to see how it comes to, you know, potentially change society or even think through those things. So that's why I'm really interested to see how the AV sector hopefully evolves and talks about other things beyond just um, zero deaths or, you know, whatever terminology they're using. And there are a couple of companies that I've seen do that, like Neuro, for example, um, how they design their vehicle, which is actually quite large to deal specifically with um, pedestrians. So they have these like uh, protective things that come out outside of the vehicle. Um, airbags, yeah. Yes, air, like an airbag on the exterior side. So I think that there's like, if the right people are in the industry to sort of push it, but I do think that they're at the threat of getting in that same hamster wheel that we've been on by just being singular minded. Um, and just to, to wrap up, Jesse, I'm, I'm kind of curious, just sort of, cause we've, I mean, we've talked about psychology and infrastructure and technology, all these, which is, which is great. That's what makes this conversation so, so fascinating. I'm just, you know, there's so much going on here. What do you see as sort of like steps forward towards making progress on this big issue of, of just, you know, our, this dysfunctional relationship we have with, with safety and, and, and accidents? The idea wow, that's happens. a really big question to wrap up things. So like solve all no, our I mean, problems, little steps, Jesse. little steps, little steps <laughs> are everything. Everything is little steps, yeah. right? It doesn't have to be a, a single, a single solution to everything. I'm just saying, how do we start to make progress in the right direction? I mean, I think if we're going to speak, you know, um, in the semantics and in the psychology and in the culture, you know, the, the most important thing we can do is to start to let the word accident, but also the idea of blame for human error be like a red flag that gets our antenna up and something that makes us ask questions and say, like, has this happened before? Could it happen again in the exact same place, you know, with the exact same vehicles? Cool. What are we going to do about that? Um, and to kind of do everything in our power to turn away from these human error arguments and to look at the systems that are in place, you know, the cultural systems, the social systems, the regulatory systems, the political systems um, that stack up layers of harm and stack up layers of harm differently for different people. But if you also want to talk, um, you know, about the more tangibles, you know, I think at the core of this is that we need to revive our regulatory agencies, so that the government has the power to protect people from corporations and rebuild the social safety net so that people can afford to better protect themselves, you know, buy a safer car, not take the most dangerous job, don't live in the apartment you know is a fire trap. So there are a million ways to prevent accidental death. We can 
advocate for traffic calming and public transit expansions, because if you're riding in the bus, you're less likely to kill someone and less likely to be killed. Um, but on, this happens in all areas of injury related death, like safe injection sites and free naloxone reduce the likelihood of an accidental drug overdose. ADA accessibility, like ramps and grab bars, reduce the likelihood of an accidental fall. Um, fire safety requirements, like sprinklers and self-closing doors, reduce the likelihood of harm in a fire. And I think there's like a common ground between all of these things, which is that they don't prevent people from making mistakes. They don't prevent human error. They prevent the harm when we inevitably make mistakes. Um, and, you know, we're all going to make mistakes on the road. Our cars are going to crash. But how can we build our roads and how can we build our cars so that the impact of those mistakes is lessened and reduced and controlled, you know? Um, but I think the last thought I'd leave you with is that it's going to take a fight. You know, um, airbags are a great example. The airbag was invented in the 1960s. It wasn't mandated in cars until 1998. Think about the number of people who died of preventable injuries in that time. Just because they made a mistake and there was no pillow, literal or figurative, between them and their mistake. Um, you know, the airbag doesn't prevent you from driving like a nut or crashing your car. It just prevents you from dying. It prevents the harm of your mistakes. And I think if we can focus on that, on every area of the road and every area of injury-related harm, we could really reduce what is now an escalating death toll. Um, no, I think that's a, a great point. And, and, and I think like, you know, just like, uh, you know, our, our, our physical built environment, you know, reflects the values of, of cars back to us all the time and forces us to, to kind of use cars. I think in the same way, you know, that's happened in our, in our minds and, and how we think about like so many different things. And, and what I really appreciate um, about your book is that it is, I think, for me, where a lot of this starts, which is starting to reshape you know, sort of the intellectual environment of, of, of our mind, right? Or the way we think about these things. And, and I think things like accidents, you know, are just such a mental shortcut that prevent us from looking at the reality of, of our world. And so I think that, you know, so much change is just acknowledge, right? It always, the first step is always acknowledging that you have a problem, right? And I think that that's what this book does. And I think it, it exposes a problem that, that is invisible to a lot of people because of a word, you know, that we've just gotten comfortable with. And so um, thank you so much for for joining us today. This has been such a, a fascinating uh, conversation. Um, the book is called No Accidents. Uh, where can where can people find your work before we uh, uh, or, or follow you uh, uh, online before we uh, wrap up? There Are No Accidents is available wherever books are sold um, and at all online retailers. And you can find me on Twitter at Jesse Singer NYC, where I am too much, far too often. Awesome. Well, thanks again uh, so much. Uh, like I said, this has just been uh, such a, a great conversation. I feel like we could easily do a double or triple episode uh, on this stuff. Um, but uh, we also unfortunately have to think of our audience <laughs> and their time. And so we thank them as well for, for listening to yet another episode of the Atomicast. And at, at the core of this is that Injury-related death is pretty simple. We know how to solve it. Um, That's uh, ominous. Uh. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> apropos. Uh, New York.